Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 54. A conversation with zoologist Rob Shore. Zoologist, you might be thinking, but yep, you heard that right. Rob is trained as a zoologist and has a particular interest in bats. Even more so, a particular interest in bats and rock climbing. I had the pleasure of chatting with Rob a couple days ago about his work and research in bat conservation. Of course, most notably, as it really relates to climbers. Rob is one of the founders of Climbers for Bat Conservation, an organization associated with Colorado State University whose focus is just what it sounds like, partnering up with climbers to help expand research on bats and to improve bat conservation. Given that bats and climbers often share this, the same vertical landscape, it was an obvious choice for Rob to open up the conversations with climbers in his local community around Fort Collins, Colorado, to gauge their interest in his idea, and it was a hit immediately. Historically, Rob was only able to really capture and observe bats while he was on the ground. Since he partnered up with the climbing community nearly a decade ago now, it has helped him learn so much more about their roosting locations up on higher cliffs where they were previously inaccessible. Through active surveying, or in other words, looking for bats while climbing, Climbers have been able to provide invaluable data for Rob and his team to better understand the characteristics of where bats roost on cliffs, in such features like in cracks or behind prominent flakes. Knowing this information, Rob can gain a better understanding of their habitat in the vertical world. I tipped my hat to Rob because studying bats sounds like a very challenging and sometimes a very frustrating endeavor, since they could be a bit elusive and inaccessible. But these little creatures are honestly pretty fascinating. A quick fact that Rob shared with me was that bats are estimated to be worth roughly $23 billion in cost savings for agriculture across North America. $23 billion. Because of the incredible and borderline absurd amount of insects that they can eat in a very short period of time. Rob also explains that when it comes to human disturbance, bat behavior and avian behavior differ very greatly. Birds are much more susceptible to human disturbance, as we all know about, through seasonal falcon closures on many of the cliffs around the country. This is not to say that bats aren't susceptible to human disturbance, but it will likely be less common to see closures for bat nesting as it is for bird nesting. And he provides a good example of that. Finally, I'd like to point everyone in the direction of the Global Climbing Initiative's Best Practices chapter on climbers and bat conservation. Besides this episode, of course, if you're looking for a sort of catch-all summary of what you need to know about bat conservation as it relates to climbing, look no further. I provided a link in the show notes for quick access for you. This is definitely one of the more unique topics I've gotten to talk about on the show, so I hope you all enjoy hearing about a bit more about uh, climbers and bat conservation. So with that, allow me to introduce you to climber and bat conservationist Rob Shore. Enjoy. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to give thanks and show some love to the sponsors and supporters of the show. Black Diamond, Adidas Turex, Alpine Star Coffee, and Plotone Audio. Thank you all for the continued support of the Climbing Advocate podcast and dedication to the climbing community.
Yeah, Rob, I'm, I'm super psyched to, to have you on. Um, I was telling you earlier that I am a alumni of CSU where you are a professor, a trained zoologist. I, I recently learned, I wasn't sure your exact position without getting too much into your background, I'll let you kind of do that. But yeah, why don't you kick us off here and tell us about your position with CSU. And I know you've been there for a while, so how long, how long have you been there as well? I have been there a while and I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm trying to count it off without sounding old. Um, I've, <laughs> I've been here 20, this is my 26th year. Oh, wow. And, right. um, yeah, I moved here after doing my master's at the University of Georgia on conservation of small mammals. And they had a position here studying a rare small mammal along the front range of Colorado and took that position in 97. So um, they haven't been able to kick me out yet. I've been able to hang around and keep studying rare species. But my official title is Senior Research Associate, which really doesn't mean a heck of a lot. Um, most of what I do is conservation biology toward animals. And so zoologist is what it, my title appears as. But um, most of it's generated for, toward data collection and understanding how to manage and conserve rare species in Colorado and the West, though I've, I've had projects as far away as Florida. My my role at CSU is um, I work at a, an organization called the Colorado Natural Heritage Program, which is a sponsored program, which we bring in contracts to help other land management agencies understand where they might have species. So we've worked with National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, uh, federal and state agencies, just to help them understand where they might have rare species, how many they might have, how they're doing, and how they might go about managing them. We, we also have worked a lot with um, uh, land conservation organizations like land trusts who are trying to plan for their own conservation in the region by helping them understand where those species are as well. So I'm not tenured, um, but it, building those contracts and working with a whole host of different partners allows a lot of flexibility and uh, diversity in the kind of conservation work that we do. It's not just bats that you work on. That's what we're going to talk about today and the intersection between bat conservation and rock climbing, of course. But I know you you step outside of bats a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what else you got going on? My passion is doing bat conservation work because, because we just don't understand much about them and they're such a unique group of mammals. But um, I have been studying other rare species in Colorado. So the position I was hired to do was to study Preble's meadow jumping mouse which is a rare subspecies of meadow jumping mouse that's found along the front range. And um, most of the conservation around that one is understanding where they are in the context of the big urban footprint that now extends from um, Cheyenne, less so down to Fort Collins, but from Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs, which is the footprint of where this thing has been found. But I've been able to study um, rare plants, rare butterflies, um, rare birds, most any um, vertebrate species that's rare in Colorado. Um, maybe there isn't a plant as a typical animal species where I play with. I've been able to dabble in. Um, so mountain plover up in South Park, um, uh, rare bats in Southern Colorado, um, rare plants up at high elevation, and even a rare butterfly that Odell Brewing Company brewed a beer for us to understand more about because the butterfly's host plant was wild hops. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, any opportunity to bring beer into the picture. <laughs> it was an easy sell to tell people yeah. that we have a rare, rare butterfly in Colorado that's a host plant is wild hops is that going to, to breweries and talking about that story. It's an easy sell. Yeah. Very cool. Are you much of a climber yourself? 
Uh, much of a climber. Uh, I, I climb, but I only got into it because it was through the passion of knowing that climbers get to see bats. And I purposely try and capture bats, and it's not easy. And so to know that climbers can do it while doing something that fun and find out where they're naturally roosting is phenomenal to me. So I started about the time this project started in 2014. And I don't make enough time to climb. Usually it's when I get the lucky chance of going to a local climbing organization and talking about climbers for back conservation that we make time to go climbing. I'm, I'm really bad about making time to do it because of, during the summer when I really want to be climbing is when I'm out studying these species. And so it's, uh, I'm not as disciplined about making time to do it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I just think that's so cool that you've, you you found climbing to be an, an interesting medium or avenue to expand on your research. And I had a gentleman on from Eastern Kentucky University earlier this year, and he's not a climber, but he like loves the climbing community and the, he studies ec- like economic impacts of climbing on on rural towns. Yes, I, I commonly use his work to to demonstrate the value of the climbing community and to understand the local impact on economies, but also understand how that's a huge user group that we can gain information from. Yeah, it's he's done some wonderful work for demonstrating that. For sure. He's got a in great the, book. In the, in the red, right? That work was in yeah, the red. Yeah, he's got a book on the red. Uh, and he's, I mean, he's done studies, I'm going to forget, um, just all around. He's done studies in several different yeah. major climbing hubs around the country. And he was, he was my longest episode. I think we went almost two hours. I mean, he just had a ton of information to share. So if you want one to listen to, go check out James's episode. I'll put a little I'll, plug for him because he was a he was a great guest. Um, well, that's cool. I just love you know talking to perhaps kind of more non climbers and why they've gotten into this community and the sport and how they've got connected to it. And that's another reason why I'm so excited to have you on to see this uh, this marriage between bat conservation and ecology and climbing. I love thinking about climbing now, and nearly every time I get up on a cliff. I turn around to try and get an idea of what the bats see from their front porch. Yeah. Is that it, it blows me away that climbers get to see bats in their natural environment. When I capture them, they're having to fly down to where we are. Mm-hmm. Climbers get a much more natural view of how they use habitat and the elevations they're at. I mean, um, it was in uh, uh, Alex Honnold's uh, book that I first learned about bats on LCAP. Mm-hmm. because he talked about being up there and having bats just pour out of cracks. Lynn Hill, too. Lynn Hill's book, she talks about bats and frogs at, at heights that we wouldn't think of. Bats shouldn't surprise us. They fly, but frogs blew my mind. Um, right. And knowing that, that climbers get to see that, that's just that's, that's, that's new information that if we hadn't started talking to climbers, we wouldn't have any ecological understanding for how they use that. Awesome. So cool. I'm glad we could we could do something to help you out here. And, and, uh, I've seen, I think I've seen one bat. I remember seeing one bat at a local cliff down here in, in Gunnison. And this was years ago. So I don't know how useful this information would be for you now, but anytime helps any, yeah. any, cause, um, even if it's historic is that bats use cliffs and rocks probably more regularly than we know. And so even if it's historic, having somebody climb there again, it may tell us what the perennial use is, how often they come back. So yeah, absolutely. And if you if you do, we reward climbers that give us data with a free t-shirt. All right. Yes. Who doesn't love free swag? Right on. <laughs> well, we'll get into that, I think, towards the end of how, how we can help and contribute data and stuff. But yeah, yeah I, I, and we'll get into this, I think, some more too. But 
bats make me squeamish. I'm a, it's a little creepy crawly to me a little bit. And we'll maybe get into how the media portrays bats and stuff. They're just kind of like this weird creature, you know, and kind of freaky. And we can yeah talk about that a little bit. But when did your interest in bats begin? Like what, what drew you to bats in the first place? It was, it was during my master's work when I was studying um, rodents, insectivores, and forests that were managed for a rare bird down the southeast, the red-cocated woodpecker. And I had some colleagues who were interested in, in bats. And so I had the chance to accompany them to a couple of conferences, go out and catch bats with them. And I was just blown away that they get to interact with a group of mammals that so few of us get to see. That, that reference to being squeamish is, isn't new. I mean, it's not unique to you. There's a lot of people who feel that way. It's because we don't get to interact with them. And so I was right. blown away that, that my friends got to go out there, survey for them, capture them, look at them. That, that mystery of a whole new group of organisms that we don't get to interact with regularly excited me. And so it was during that time I started my own little project um, at an area at the border of Alabama and Georgia, capturing bats, collecting guano, and looking at their diet. Like I was saying, it makes me a little squeamish. So there's like these there's, there's misconceptions about bats and you address this in the best practices chapter on bat conservation for the global climbing initiative so can we can you explain some some of the things that why i might feel squeamish or why the general public might feel a little uh about bats? we may exceed the record for your podcast length if we go into all the misconceptions (laughs) of bats yeah uh it's it's a it's a group of mammals that i think is so maligned and because people don't get to interact with them. Um, they think that they're uh, vicious, that they're aggressive, that they fly in your hair. Um, a lot of those myths arose because bats hunt bugs and quite often bugs are attracted to us. And so they'll sometimes fly near trying to hunt the things because they're aggregating around us. Um, they're, they're not ferocious other than how they collect the bugs that they're after is they can be pretty aggressive about how they can eat. I've captured bats early in the evening, tagged them, and they might weigh six grams, catch them later that night, and they're 10 grams. So they can eat so voraciously to put on nearly double their body mass. So, um, and and because they eat insects is they have pretty sharp teeth and their grin is not always um, that appealing. So they look they look like they could be ferocious. But um, they're really kind of a timid, um, sometimes almost sleepy kind of mammal group that we handle. I've captured bats that will just sit on my hand and hang out. Nobody out there should be capturing bats and handling them. Um, Bats do carry rabies, but the rates are way overinflated for how many do. And that's because the only ones that we ever encounter are the ones that are sick and on the ground where we can access them. So there's thousands, if not millions, of healthy bats that are flying around that we never encounter. It's only the select few that end up getting sick and are accessible to us that, that are problematic, and then we sample those, and yeah, we, we find out that they have rabies. But skunks have rabies. Fox have rabies. There's a whole host of other mammal groups that carry rabies. And so um, I think part of that disease history has caused um, a lot of people to fear them. And usually I've had bats in my house and usually the easiest thing to do to get them to leave is uh, open up doors because since they navigate by sound is they'll eventually find where those openings are and fly out. Um, Trying to capture them or swat them usually uh, ends up with 
a dead bat because they fly and their bones aren't particularly big and thick because they're trying to reduce weight as much as possible. So they're pretty delicate animals, even though most people think that they're big and ferocious is that uh, most of the ones that I've ever handled are about the size of my hand. I, I read a fact, something about like eating how many metric tons of insects uh, a year, or I forget what like the temporal scale was there, but yeah, do you know which one I'm talking talking about? I, I do, but I'm really going to misquote the volume of of how much how many insects bats eat in an evening. I think that's dependent on the size of the population. One of the best um, assessments that I saw was that they estimated that bats save the agricultural industry. $23 billion in pest control costs annually. That is and that absurd. ranged from $5 billion to $100 billion. So, so 23 was somewhere in that, what they thought was closer to the true answer, but it could be as high as $100 billion. But to think that the amount of insects that bats are eating and consuming that may um, have had to be controlled chemically, both saving the expenses of controlling them and saving the use of pesticides in the environment where we want to get our food and we have to work and live. Mm -hmm. Wow. Are there, how do I say this? I mean, is, is that just, are bats used naturally as pest controllers or is there like a, do, do, would like a farmer or a rancher or something like, uh, use them more systematically? Can they like get, can they release a certain amount of bats over their crops or something? Or is it just like, yeah. it just happens? Do we know the diet specifically well enough about certain bats to try and collect those bats to, to harvest those? We, we don't. Okay. It, it's we have not um, we have not figured out their diet so specifically to know who's eating what all the time, and the idea of generating a lot of bats is not particularly easy. Bats, even though they're small, are outrageously long lived for the size that they are. So they've captured little brown bats, which I work with a lot. They're six gram animals. Normally, for a mammal that size, you might expect to live a year. Maybe maybe if you're lucky too. They've captured little brown bats later that were marked 40 years ago. Wow. So, 40? so they, they can live a really long time for their body size, but females are only producing one pup a year. So, so their ability to generate large populations quickly, they're not like mice that can have multiple generations each year of lots of young. It takes them a lot of insect resources during a specific time in North America summer to be able to get enough energy produce a pup, feed it, and get either migrating to another place that has insects or finding a place to hibernate that's cold and avoid the time when insects aren't available. Wow. And that's me another misconception because I always, you know, you picture just a, a cave full of like a million bats at once, right? And they're all like gathered together. So you'd think they may reproduce a lot, but mm -hmm. they don't. That's That's been produced over decades to produce yeah. those, those numbers. And historically i mean there probably were insect populations that could definitely provided that mm -hmm. the, the latest challenge for bats though has been a new disease where we've had millions of bats um that have dropped to thousands of bats because of a new fungal disease found in north america that we think came about 2005 and so even though we had large large aggregations is that even those populations have been compromised and that's part of what began climate for bat conservation, but I want to get ahead of ourselves. The white nose syndrome, is that what you're referring to? Correct. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Definitely have heard of that. Well let's get into let's get into the climbers. I think it's a perfect segue segue. When did you when did you recognize the marriage between these two as an opportunity to expand on uh, bat research? 
It was, as with most of my good ideas, talking with others that I really enjoy talking about conservation issues with. Um, and so I have a colleague here who studies bats with me, and I have another colleague, she's taken another job, but she was a conservation botanist. And she had used climbers to repel into Black Canyon Gunnison to look at a rare plant that grows along the cliffs. And so we started talking about, well, I wonder, you know, given the vertical landscapes that climbers see, I wonder if they stumble upon bats. And, and she recommended, well, let's take a look at Mountain Project. Let's just search in there and see who's documenting where they see bats. And lo and behold, you know, there's records in there where climbers have seen bats. And that colleague, Bernadette Kuhn, and I worked with a human dimension specialist over at um, the College of Natural Resources, Sean Davis, and said, why don't, we, why don't we get some money and just figure out if there's a relationship to be built with climbers and bat biologists, just try it out. So we invited um, important climbers from Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition, Ben Scott, who leads that, and um, biologists and uh, land managers together here at CSU and just hosted a meeting to talk about what we like about being doing what we do, climbing for recreation, seeing the outdoors, biologists for caring for the things that are in the outdoors. And if there's any common ground to figure out is this is a, a unique opportunity to to create a citizen science project where we could learn more about bats. And I have always, even from the beginning, been um, been clear that the data we collect is not meant to to keep people from access to climbing because we knew that we knew what had happened with the history of raptor management. And so we wanted to be very careful that we built relationships the right way by talking to climbers first. How does this sit with you? Is this something you think it would be viable or would it be upsetting? And thankfully Ben Scott and a lot of the, the NC and C were so excited by the idea, they were moving faster than I wanted to. <laughs> There's a gag get t-shirts, get stickers, get a website developed, get on social media. And I'm like, okay, okay, hold on. Let's, let's, make, <laughs> let's make sure that everybody else feels the same way about this. And, and thankfully our slow starts and our process of approaching climbers first instead of just asking for data has really been productive. Uh, it's, it's been a, a rewarding relationship because you feel like you're part of the same community with them and you engage them with the whole reasons you want the information. Very cool. That's a great, great approach. And I think you picked the, the first, I don't know, guinea pig, so to speak with Ben. You know, he's a very psyched guy. I had him on the show a couple of years ago. And oh, yeah? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's another episode you should check out. But I mean, the Northern, Col the Northern Colorado Climate Coalition is like what got me into climbing advocacy. I mean, they're, I found out who they were. And I mean, the rest of this history, that was like a decade ago, over a decade ago, you know. Um, so yeah, I picked a good partner there to, to kick things off with. If you see our logo, it was designed by Ben. Oh, really? Well, he's, yeah. he's the graphic designer, right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so was that in 2014? I think you mentioned the date 2014 earlier. Yeah, is that about I can't remember if we got funding in 2013 and hosted the meeting in 2014 or or, from, or we started in 2013, but, but about then. It's it's tough to imagine that we're almost 10 years into this because uh, <laughs> it's it's been slow growth and you kind of forget the baby steps you've taken along the way. But yeah, I think it was, I think about 2013, 2014. Yeah. Cool. Okay. How do you, like, how do you approach this? This sounds like difficult and maybe I'm just overthinking it, but I imagine, I mean, you know, like bat habitat, you know, like where they, 
might be hanging out around Fort Collins where you are. And then you got to go to the cliff, climb the cliff. And like, I'm just wondering about like success rate. Do you climb like 10 routes and you find them on three to five? Like, how do you, how do you take like X climber and be like, okay, go monitor this area and tell us what you find. We're just now getting into that part of it. Everything early on was just what can we learn from climbers about what they already know? Where have they been? Like you said, you were on a cliff, you know, always time back and you remember seeing a bat. If we can just get them to tell us those stories, we can start understanding, okay, well, they've seen bats hundreds of feet off the ground, or in some instances on boulders that are five feet off the ground, or what aspect are they facing? What, 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 uh, crack dimensions are like, we just wanted to start with what data climbers already had in their, back of their mind from their experiences to learn where bats might be. The active surveying part didn't really come in until about 2018, 2019, when we tried that idea, um, got some funding from um, uh, City of Boulder uh, Parks, uh, City of Boulder Mountain Parks and Open Space Program uh, and Jefferson County Open Space to hire two student climbers to do exactly what you described. Okay, just go out there and survey and look for bats without having any prior information. And they climbed about 50 routes in those areas and found two roosts. So it wasn't that there's an abundance of places that they found, um, but it told us that they could find out about where bats are roosting just by just by climbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a student right now, uh, Emily Gross, who's a graduate student here at CSU, who's doing that in Red River Gorge. Oh, cool. She's She's using the records that climbers have provided, which was between 30 and 40 over the time we've been going. And she's revisiting those to see if bats are still using it, but also contacting climbers and talking with them about their experience and how uh, providing data increases their experience or value for the resource. So she's doing a human dimension study while also describing the biology of bats in the Red River Board. Cool. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it all started with like kind of retroactive data information. What do you remember? Just kind of passive data collection, just to learn what climbers already know that we are just hungry for to know what their, where their natural roosts are. Mm-hmm. So then you started the actual surveying about five, four or five years ago. Yeah. And that's only, that's kind of been restricted to where we have funds to do it is sure. that, um, the climbing community is so big is we don't think we've scratched the surface. I but, doubt it. But we're, yeah. but, but we're okay with that as long as the climbers are the ones spreading spreading interests and support is that if they're by word of mouth telling people what we do and they enjoy doing it, that helps us build a community that understands why we want it. And we just, we just want to understand bat biology, where they roost, and maybe find out where large populations are that we can monitor them as this new disease has come into North America so we can monitor them over time and see if the disease is claiming those bats as well. Yep. Totally. So the active, the active surveying part, we have not, um, though, uh, we haven't, we haven't built the whole program with that, but if you ask me why dream ideal would be for climbers for bat conservation, it'd be to have a full-time climbing crew of bat biologists that go out there and look or follow up on records from climbers. Devil's tower had a full-time bat biology crew. And one of my first experiences was with their biologist, their climber biologist, Phil Connect and Andrew Lyons Gold, who Phil took me up Devil's Tower. <laughs> and awesome. that, was, that was one of my first climbing experiences. And I thought, okay, this is fascinating. 
I learned the term greasy from greasy. <laughs> climbing Durant's uh, uh, yeah. route. Yeah, like, was like the, the classic. It's probably like seen thousands of of uh, yeah. Of and so yeah. my struggling uh, feet and and arms uh, made it up there eventually, but it wasn't without Phil's uh, hard work too. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. So what trends have you seen over the years then? You've been at it for almost 10 years and using that kind of passive data and now the serving data, like what has really started to jump out at you? What are the, what are these common denominators you're finding between these people that are giving you this data? So, so we've been doing this for about 10 years and we have about 250 records. So most of those in the U.S., a couple in Canada, and scatterings from Kenya, Bulgaria, Italy, Norway. Um, but even though 250 records sounds like a lot, is that uh, I think we need to dive into the data a little deeper to understand if there's general characteristics for how we can look at a cliff and say, okay, we expect bats to be there. Mm -hmm. The one thing that has popped out, and the Boulder area has demonstrated this well, is that if there's a flake that's gets a lot of sun exposure, so a south or southeast-facing flake, is that climbers have reported large groups of bats hiding behind those to the point where I think we have three records of the same flake on the same route that climbers just know. Say, hey, there's bats up here about 125 feet. Go to the right. You'll hear them squeaking. Just avoid it. Mm -hmm. And we think that those hot um, flakes is that the solar exposure generates a lot of heat behind that flake and that's where females are having their pups because some of the roosts that i study the internal temperatures get up to 125 degrees fahrenheit mm. and so we think that, that the females are pulling together there having pups and letting that heat just keep the pups warm while they might have to go out hunting yep yep makes sense that's, that's really cool yeah really cool characteristic to to know now it, it came out a couple of times without, yeah, that's probably something we should be looking for, those exposures and where flakes exist. Cracks are great um, because you can get a whole temperature variation the deeper you go. Mm -hmm. But sometimes those are so deep, we can't figure out if bats are back there. We can only, we can only see so far. So <laughs> there could be a lot of bats back there. And we've tried endoscopic cameras where we poke them in there a ways, but even those only go 12 inches, 18 inches if you're lucky. We think different ages and different sexes are using the cliffs for different reasons. So there may be some that are going in there to cool down so that they aren't having to fuel their metabolism when they're not able to hunt. So right. they might just cool off and shut down during the day when they're not hunting. And then when they start getting ready to hunt, ramp back up, climb out, go hunting and find a cool spot for the day. That's, that's where I saw my bat was in a crack, was not in a flake, but in a kind of a deep, dark crack. I don't, I, this was several years ago, but I mean, at least six inches back. I don't know if, if seeing a foot into a dark crack is realistic for human vision, I guess, but that's my guess is what it was, maybe six to 12 inches. Yeah. And, and, and depending on the light, it, it can be harder or easier to see in those. I mean, if you've got sunlight behind you, it could be easier to see deeper or if, yep. if it's in front of you. Yeah. Then it could be more challenging. All depends on the luck, luck you have with the light. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I bet. Yeah, I mean, the cliff is south facing, so that I have the sun behind me. You know, it, it spooked me, kind of. Like, should I be? Like, should, do we need to be? It's like, just leave them alone, and they're not going to bother you. Like, kind of thing. I think you should always you should always be vigilant. I mean, yeah, if you get bit by something, yeah, you should you should be checked out by a doctor. But I've only had probably a handful of climbers tell me that's happened to them. Um, usually. Um, 
they you get spooked because something crawls over your hand. Yeah, totally. Um, I think the only times that biting has occurred is probably when a bat has no more space to get away from what it perceives as maybe a snake or something reaching in to eat it. Sure. And so its first its response is nip it and get out of there. Of course. But, but they aren't big animals, and their biting is not uh, aggressive. It's probably just defensive because mm -hmm. they don't know what's happening in a crack where they've normally been able to hang out and rest. Um, but I always, I always tell people is be vigilant. But hearing some of the stories from climbers when they come across cliffs and find snakes and other things hanging out is that <laughs> what you guys find at different elevations is shocking and sometimes surprising. So knowing you could put your, put your hand up on a cliff and find a copperhead or something, that's, that's really alarming. Well, I'm, I'm picturing I think I read this in the in the best practices chapter, but distinguishing the difference between guano and just bird bird droppings. I mean, is the, do they, can they look similar? Can they be mistaken for Not each other? Not so much with bird. Bird okay. has that whitish, uh, real defining kind of crusty, liquidy that's pretty easy to define. The things that look like bat guano are from rodents. Okay. So the the most often thing that I hear climbers tell me about is they saw these big black greasy smears on the rock and that that was guano but that's not that's wood rat so wood rats create these middens and these latrines that they urinate and poop in in the same year same place year after year and create these really disgusting looking slimy looking smears along the rock bat guano looks like mouse turds but it's usually pinched at either end. And if you want to do this, is that if you, if you squeeze it and it's easy to crush up and it glistens, that's guano, that's bat poop. Because they're eating bugs is those hard chitinous materials get crunched up and look like glitter. Whereas mouse is mainly vegetation and it's really hard to break that up. You have to push really hard. Yeah. Whereas guano, you push on a little bit and it breaks up and you see little glints of light on it. Hmm. Interesting. And I'll see the can... wood rat, wood rat looks like that, but it's much bigger. I mean, guano might be the length of the width of your pinky nail. It's not very big at all. Bats aren't that big, and so their poop droppings aren't that big. Can it like kind of mushroom and kind of grow into kind of a big pile? It it, it can if you have a lot of bats in the same roost over time. So I bet under yeah. the maternity colony where that flake is, yeah, I bet there's there's some accumulation there. Yeah. But most of the records we're getting from climbers is they might see one or two bats in this crack. So there, there could be a ton of places that bats just go and hang out for maybe an hour while they're hunting or during the day for the entire day. But if it's just one bat, they're not pooping so much to create the, the large piles that you might see in caves or under uh, regular roosts. What is what is a wood rat? I mean, how, how can they, are they like natural climbers themselves can they scurry up like you know way high they're phenomenal climbers as well is that they find cracks that we don't see and, and wedge their way up there and then collect wooden and sticks and build these these middens and then like i said poop and pee in the same spot and see blackish green smears that that just uh, extend for a ways they've been able to look at historic forests by the pollen accumulation of different layers in those latrines wow wow Fascinating. Gosh, <laughs> so much connection to 
poop. <laughs> it's a funny thing to discuss, yeah. but I mean, it's, but like, so I'm thinking of a particular area, um, right up the road from me, there's a big, it's a big, like overhang kind of cave ish, like mm-hmm. with a big slab that kind of comes out underneath and there's a good route that goes up it, but I always avoided it cause it's just covered in shit. And I don't know if it's bat or this wood rat now. Um, uh, but it's, I always take it as like, Oh, it's just covered in guano but i could be completely misrepresenting what it is if it's if it's smeared along the wall it's probably wood red if it's it's collected below in, in piles that could be bad on the ground or on the on the cliff itself on, on the ground okay. uh, bad guano isn't so sticky that's i mean you might see a couple pieces stuck to the wall but it'll okay. usually fall down all right um, it's gotta be the rat then because it's on it's on like the wall there's like a slab that's like you climb up to get, yeah, you like get off the ground, get on the slab, and then you're like up on the overhang. On our website, it provides some pictures of <laughs> of poop so that people can get an idea of what they might be climbing by. Good reference. All right. And, and your mention resource. of an overhang is another characteristic we're kind of learning from climbers as well, as we think bats might use those overhangs as weather protection. Mm-hmm. We think they might be climbing and using cracks just like an umbrella. Yeah. hang in hang out and when it's raining or whatever all right interesting yeah like one of my you know big projects i'm working on right now it's like there's a really good hole at the top and i just got to like delicately like move around to the right spot because it's got crap all over it and i always took it as, as as bat but if you can get in the right spot you can avoid it but you kind of get in it a little bit <laughs> sounding more and more like wood rat latrine okay good to know Learn something new every day. All right, what are what are some of the primary concerns around climbers disturbing bats and and roosting behaviors? I know this can differ. This differs, I think, a lot from avian uh, wildlife and and the falcons. You know, we can get into some of that some more. But what are yeah? What kind of disturbance might happen between humans and bats? Well, let's start the conversation there because um, that was our our concern was what's the disturbance level because we're so aware of how raptors respond to climbers, how do bats respond to climbers? And we think that bats and and raptors respond completely differently. Raptors are vision-based, can see for a long ways, they're reproducing, they have a nest, they're very protective, and they'll let you know, sometimes very aggressively if you get too close. Whereas most of the encounters with bats is they're tucked away pretty deep inside and they're not territorial, it's just they're hanging out in a place where they can rest. And so I've had climbers tell me that they've climbed up, seen a bat in a spot, came back down and see the bat in the same spot. So it isn't even clear that the climbers are having such a disturbance that bats would leave. It's, it's impossible to say there isn't any behavioral response from the bats, but most often it doesn't seem to be so, um, so impactful that the bats feel like they need to leave. I do have a few records where where climbers put their hands in and a bat flies out or, you know, the few instances when they said a bat bit them. But I've got so many great pictures from climbers of seeing bats just hanging out in cracks that I'm mm-hmm. jealous of. <laughs> they've, got, they've got better pictures of bats than I do. Yeah. Um, so we don't think that there's anything that climbers need to do while they're climbing to really decrease disturbance. There are some things that can be happening either in development of climbing or if you're camped out near a climbing route that could be detrimental or problematic to bats and what we kind of focus on in that chapter with the climbing initiative. 
is that if you're developing a route, is there could be um, pretty specific sound and vibration disturbance. So if, if there's mm -hmm. drills being used, there could be bats and cracks that could feel that vibration and not know what's happening and, and exit. Right now, we don't know how to mediate those because we still don't understand how bats are using the landscapes in the same areas where, where the climbing is being developed. The thing we do want to make clear to climbers is that there are occasions when climbers want to climb inside caves. And we know that caves are a regular used resource for bats. And so in that chapter, we kind of outline how you might want to change how close your proximity is. Um, if you're camping nearby and not building fires that could blow smoke into roosts where bats are aggregated. Um, and spending a lot of time, even chalk could possibly, dust could possibly change how they're using it. But to be aware of your proximity to cave openings and climbing in there and how that might disturb bats that are roosting at the opening of the cave and maybe even further in. Yeah, I think the bat that I saw even like, and they kind of have, I think they even had like a hunkering down behavior. Mm -hmm. Like it tried to crawl back a little bit further. It's like, it's more scared right. of me than I was of it, right? Um, yep. So yeah, it's interesting. Part of my current job is, is working on uh, recreational disturbance on the Great Blue Heron. Uh, oh. along one of the rivers in, in Crested Butte. And they, they, again, avian wildlife, they're, you know, highly uh, sensitive to human disturbance. So when boaters might, you know, float by the rookery, they'll, you know, they'll flush, they'll have some kind of like hunkering behavior to get down. And, you know, the, the, the concern is they might not return back to the nest where their where their chicks have just hatched. So, you know, I've gotten familiar with human disturbance to avian wildlife, but yeah, bats seem to be just be a whole different whole different thing and we're not sure yeah we're not i mean not conclusive yet but i think we can understand there's a stark difference with it between the two yeah bats aren't calling to let everybody else know that people are nearby whereas raptors are making it clear that there's something going wrong and and there's definitely stress levels with those raptors because they, they have young there and they have no idea if they're younger in jeopardy or not with that, with that said, though, there was a, a student and a researcher in Oregon that were doing a great job, and I forget their names right now, they're doing a great job of using the topography and landscape to map out what the vision lines might be of a raptor at a nest mm. so that you can get a clear idea of where climbers might be able to climb nearby because they're never seen by the raptor and they're out of the line of sight. So, yeah, they were doing some really interesting work by looking at the topography to understand uh, what proximity really means to okay so we're talking about vision and proximity with birds how about the sound and vibrations with bats i mean how if i'm drilling if i'm drilling a new anchor 100 yards away you know is that something you can like explain or like do we have any great kind of question like great question peter i wish <laughs> i wish that we understood it better bats use sound that is so far beyond our hearing there's a few bats that drop down into and in, in drop, drop down into our hearing range and they're there's a few out in the western side of Colorado. So if you're out at night and you hear that, tss, 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 there are some that we can actually hear with our with our naked ear. But most of them are vocalizing and communicating and hunting at such high frequencies that we don't know what part of sound and the vibration would be impactful to them. It'd have to be pretty high, but it could also be low if it's actually vibrating the roost that they're on. So there could be vibration and sound that are they're impacting them differently. But, but we haven't been able to test that. And, I'm not sure how to yet. Man, 
This sounds so challenging, Rob. Like I'm, I, I tip my hat to you for sticking with such a complicated species to study. I mean, it's fascinating, but it sounds yeah really frustrating. Maybe at times you're just like, God, I'm trying to crack the nut on this, this, and that. It is, but we're learning so much more about how bats naturally roost from climbers. If we never even opened this conversation, we wouldn't know how they're using these structures in the mm -hmm. ways that we do now. So yeah, it, it'll always be complicated. They're they're nocturnal predominantly. They're small. They're brown. They vocalize in, in ranges we can't typically hear. So uh, there aren't a ton of people out looking for them. Like there are birders looking for birds. So it's it's already a distinct group that's challenging to study. This is the discoveries we're making with climbers are opening up a new page for our understanding. So yeah, they've always been difficult, but we're making some progress. I imagine the Climbers for Bat Conservation, this actual like initiative that you've created, I mean, this has got to be the first of its kind. I mean, is this was this a really new novel idea or were you, were you pulling ideas from, from somewhere else in Europe or South America or what, wherever, or is this kind of your, your, your thing, Rob? I'd like to say it's my thing, but I'm always surprised by what others have been doing and talking about elsewhere. I, I don't know of uh, another group that's been doing this, though there have been biologists who have been climbing looking for bats from before we started ours. And that was at Devil's Tower and uh, at Yosemite, uh, a group called Big Wall Bats mm. that was headed um, uh, by Dr. Breezy Jackson. So there was an understanding, even before we started our project, that climbers could facilitate this. But I think ours is the first one to make a big outreach to say, hey, we'd love to learn about your information. How can we share that and, and understand more about bats? Projects. I want to talk some like specific projects, if if we can, and what you're yeah. particularly proud of that's happened over the years. Maybe something that you've done or a student. Can we talk about yeah some specific projects that have been going on out there the last decade or so? My immediate response is the data, and from as broad as it's been. Uh, if you talk, if you told me in ten years ago that this would take off and you get records as far away as Kenya and Bulgaria and Italy, and uh, I said, yeah, you, that, that's laughable. So I'm, I'm I'm proud of that, but I'm I'm more proud of the way we've shared the project and grown the project. So we've purposely interacted with local climbing organizations to sit down with them and talk about the project. So we first did here in Northern Colorado, then we did it at Red River Gorge with the uh, RG, uh, RRGCC, Red River Gorge Climbing Coalition, um, US Fish and Wildlife Service, the Kentucky uh, State Wildlife Management Agency, the local biologists pulled them all together to talk about bats and climbing. And now Red River Gorge is one where we have the most records, except for regions of Colorado, which are in close proximity to me. But we're doing that um, this summer in um, going out to New River Gorge and attending the Cragging Classic so we can talk to climbers. We're hosting another sit-down meeting in Pennsylvania with a group of LCOs to talk about climbing, climbers and bats, and even share with them some of the ways that citizens can discover bats without climbing. There, there are now acoustic detectors, ultrasonic acoustic detectors you can plug into your iPhone or, or Android that can detect the, the calls of bats and help you identify. They can use the, the sonograms of the bats to help you identify what's flying around you. And so we're going to spend a couple of days climbing, talking about bats, trying to share bats with them without actually capturing them. Um, and that kind of connection is what I'm most proud of for Climbers for Bat Conservation. It's, it's the way we always wanted to grow. 
and create trust within the climate community. That's awesome. Yeah, I've I've wanted to ask about just your the outreach and education you've done, and I know you've been kind of all over doing presentations and talks, and I know that you've been invited to join for the Access Fund annual conference this year in Arkansas. Are you are you coming to to talk or is someone I'm else? Coming. I'm coming. Right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm, I'm making my plans to be there. I'm, yeah. All right, I'll be there. So, oh, very cool. To meet me yeah. in person. Um, yeah. So, like, what is is there a primary message that you have, uh, like specific talking points that you have when you go to these events? Do you kind of hit on the same thing, or, or is it unique to where your venue is, to where your, whatever region you might be in? No, it's it's usually the same general topics. Is that we as bat biologists know that we don't know a lot. We, we know that we've just scratched the surface on, on knowing where bats are because we relied on where we can access them easily. So where can, where can biologists climb into caves or climb into mines and find bats? Well, that's accessible to us. Well, or where can we find them in, in old homes or old buildings? Well, that's accessible to us. Let's start thinking about where bats see the world and how they see the landscape and then start connecting with those who see the landscape in a similar fashion, like climbers. So most of my message has been is that Climbers are our teachers. Climbers teach us about the biology of bats, and we just have to be good about respecting their access, respecting how they use the landscape, because it teaches us so much about how we want to know how bats use the world. And it, it's been through Access Fund that's helped us gain that venue. They, were, they produced... Uh, a poster that talks about bat conservation and climbing and how climbers can contribute to that. And that was the biggest door opening for us because it got us in front of biologists or climbers and they climbers knew we were working with a trusted group like access fund. So I'm, I'm proud of that relationship too. Awesome. Yeah, you should be. Where can climbers submit this data and help contribute to the program? Where can you direct them to submit your, their observations? Unfortunately, unfortunately, we, we have a website uh, and we have a social couple social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. But most of the access still to the data submission is through our website. And I can't state that URL succinctly <laughs> in front of you because uh, I think it incorporates Colorado State University and EU in the yeah. fashion in front of it. Uh, but I can try and get you that um because uh, I can't remember exactly where the uh, hyphens are or the underlines <laughs> to make sure that I get it right and people aren't following dead links. Yeah, um, fair enough. But most most of that is accessible on our website. Where we have the key to bat guano. We have stories of bat conservation. We have pictures of some of the groups that we've hosted already. Uh, but searching for climbers for bat conservation, on most search engines will produce that at Colorado State University. And on our homepage, is there's an option to submit data. And that'll take you to a separate page where you can enter data. And we have a separate page where you can actually view the data. So all this data is open to climbers. Oh, perfect. Is that there's a view and submit or submit and view tab where you can both submit the data, but actually view in a global map where records are and click on those and see pictures that climbers have provided, see some of the details of where they've seen bats. And that's part of what we want to do is make sure that this was an open environment for climbers to understand how they're contributing and for biologists to say, oh, that bat's in my neighborhood. Maybe I should go over there and film that roost to see if there's a lot of bats that are coming out of the rock. So the million dollar question I think a lot of climbers might have is, can this lead to lead to closures or voluntary 
closures, something along those lines. Uh, we talked about the behavior difference between the two, between avian wildlife and bats, but yeah. um, is that is that a, a possibility? It, it, it is a possibility and it's actually a reality, but I'm, I'm gonna tell you that the closure that I know of has been the least controversial closure I've ever heard of. Mm. So um, it's in uh, New York, and I'm going to forget the climbers, uh, the climbing community. But it was a it was a route near a cave, and the cave was one that had bats in it. It was a show cave, so people knew that you can go in there. But it got white nose syndrome. The population did there, and so it dropped. I think from thousands down to fifty or hundred. And it had an endangered bat using that roost too. And so uh, it was Thacker, Thacker uh, Climber, uh, oh, Climber's Closure. Uh, th- is it Thatcher State Park or something? There it is. Yeah. Bingo. Totally. Yeah. And so the nice thing is, is that the state park system worked with the climbing community early on and talked about this with them and said, hey, we know that there's this cave here. We know that climbing occurs nearby, but this disease really manifests in the winter. What if we closed it during wintertime? And that seemed like the least controversial part of it because it was difficult to access in the winter because snow filled up the trail and kind of got icy to get to it. And it was only seven routes of the 70 that were along the entire wall. And so closing it for the select time, I think it's from October to April, meant it didn't impact a lot of climbing. And it was only temporary during the time when bats would be using or hibernating in that, in that cave. So it, it, it can but I think that um, the way bats respond to humans doesn't necessarily mean that climbing and bat conservation are in- incompatible. Yeah, yeah, cool. Good to know. And because that the one you just mentioned, the, that closure, that was in relation, the impetus for that was a disease control kind of thing rather right. than like a behavior reason. Right, right. There's the, so we have yet we have yet to hear that climbers climb an area and all the bats leave. Yeah, and never come back. I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue with like a disease thing rather than a behavioral thing because some. I mean, I think largely, I think climbers have have respected bird closures and falcon closures for a long time. It's just it's 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 been around a long time, like. These, these closures on, on certain cliffs around the Flatirons and around like oh, the yeah. cliffs in Indian Creek and, you know, Moab and stuff, you know, they've been around a while and I think we've gotten used to them and, and abide by them by and large is my impression. I, I have found climbers to be the best ambassadors for the conservation that we want to do is they, they talk about it, they respect it and they want to contribute. And awesome. they do because we wanted this to spread throughout the community separate from us is they've done this. They've grown it. <laughs> if, if we had a bad relationship, it wouldn't keep going. And we, we knew that. So uh, we really respect and are thankful that we have the relationship we do with climbers. It's because you did it right, Rob. You started off on the right foot, I think. Just so, you know, you opened. opened well, and now I'm a climber, so I'm in. So yeah. I'm, I want access. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, what other resources are out there for climbers to consult and learn more about uh, climbers for bat conservation and just Bat conservation in general, if they want to take it beyond just the relationship with climbing. Please visit our website. I've tried to address most of the topics I think that are going to be on the tip of the tongue for climbers when they want to find out about bats and where they roost and conservation issues and and how our organization is run. Um, But there's a host of big conservation organizations in the U.S. that have done wonders, like Bat Conservation International. It's been around 
for decades out of Austin, Texas, and they've done phenomenal things for, for conservation. There's international organizations like Back, Back Conservation Trust. Uh, the nice that's based in England, and, and the nice thing is, is that I've been invited to talk about climate change back conservation uh, online with with climbing community in England. So this this is growing, I think, internationally, and it's it's because climbers have such a great environmental ethic. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in. I I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.